Well, good morning, church. Pastor Jace is sick. Pastor Bert is sick. Pastor Jacob is sick. America's away at Pastor's College. So you get me today. <laughs> no. Actually, it's, it's providential, funny, I don't know. Um, I've been scheduled to preach today for several months. Uh, Jace talked to me several months ago and said, hey, you know, we want to give you opportunities to preach. How about you know, June 2nd, good opportunity for you to come and to preach the first sermon of the new year. And so I've been studying and preparing uh, for this day. Uh, and as I said, providentially, God had ordained that uh, the other pastors would be sick today, but we pray for them. We want to continue to lift them up, uh, just ask that God would heal them and get them better. But I'm grateful to be here with you this morning, grateful to have the opportunity to preach God's word. It's always a privilege, always an opportunity to preach the word of God, uh, a great responsibility as well. I just pray that God would help us this morning to truly understand what his word is saying to us. It's a passage that's not unfamiliar, I'm sure, to all of us here this morning. Uh, we've heard this passage before, we've read it before, thought through it before, really want to dive into this together with you today and um, just pray and ask that all of us together would really take some time to reflect on this passage, to, to think about this passage in relation to our own lives as we're beginning this new year of 2022. Uh, I think that this particular passage has a great opportunity for us to really think about and evaluate our lives and, and where do we stand in relation to Christ? Where do we stand in relation to Christ and what are we building our lives on? So I want to read the text here from Matthew chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 24 through 29. What an, one other thing that I did want to say before we read the passage. You may notice that we've skipped ahead a little bit. Um, Pastor Jace, the last time he preached in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, taught through uh, verses 15 through 20, uh, where we looked at the false prophets. Uh, so I believe that he has one more message on that particular section, and then there's another section um, in verses 21 through 23, uh, the men who say, Lord, Lord. Uh, and so there are some more sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. I've, like I said, been scheduled for a while to preach this particular passage, so we're jumping ahead a little bit to finish up the Sermon on the Mount, and then when Pastor Jace returns, we'll go back and, uh, and finish up those other sections. But I'm going to read for you this morning Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, so please follow along as I read. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before you recognizing that you are good God, you love and care for us, and you have given us your word. 
We thank you for the word of God that is a sure and solid foundation. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is our rock and eternal hope. God, I pray this morning that you would help me as I preach through this text. I pray that your words would be clear, uh, that you would speak to our hearts. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability this morning to engage our hearts, our minds, our souls in ways that will bring about transformation. And I pray for that. I pray that our hearts would be transformed today, that we might love you and follow you in obedience. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who are deceived, who believe that they are Christians walking with God and yet are not, as this passage talks about, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their minds, open their hearts to see their need for Christ, that they might be saved. God, for those of us who, who know you and desire to build our lives on the solid rock of Christ, I pray that you would continue to firm up that foundation, that you would help us in these coming days in this year, God, to live our lives in such a way that we are building for eternal things. I pray that you would help us this morning. Bless your word. Give us guidance and wisdom. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over several months between the years of 1722 and 1723, a young Jonathan Edwards sat down and wrote out a list of what are now famous life resolutions. You may have heard the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. If you've not done so, if you've not read through those, I would encourage you to do that at the beginning of this new year to look and to read through these resolutions made by a young man whose desire and heart was to follow hard after God. He wanted to know God. He wanted to live for him. And at the young age of 19, Jonathan Edwards showed an incredible amount of spiritual maturity and a desire to walk with Christ with his whole heart. I want to highlight for you this morning as we begin just a few of those resolutions. Resolution number seven by Jonathan Edwards says, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And 19, Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected that it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. And what I want us to see in that, the reason why I chose those three particular resolutions is to highlight that Edwards, even at the young age of 19, had already had a clear awareness of the brevity of life. He had an understanding, the foresight to know that his life was going to, at some point, come to an end. And that could happen at any time. He wanted to live in the reality that life is a vapor, that it can vanish at any moment, and that the things that we do in this life are important, that it is meaningful how we spend our lives up until the point when God says it's time to be done. Edwards wanted to build his life on solid ground. And today, we are standing at the doorway of a new year, 2022. It's hard to believe. That's a, 2022 is here. The last two years have taught us that we can never quite be sure what to expect that's coming before us in the, in the new year. There are a lot of uncertainties in this world, but the one thing that we can be certain of 
is the unshakable foundation of God's inerrant and infallible and authoritative word. In the closing of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus paints a picture of two lives lived in relation to that word, to the word of God. And I wanna look at that with you this morning. Again, look down at your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter seven. Uh, We're here in verse 24, and there are two main points that I wanna consider with you this morning. First, we're gonna look at the authority of God's word pictured. God, uh, Jesus gives us a picture here in these first couple of verses. So we'll look at the authority of God's word pictured, and then finally, in the last two verses of this section, the authority of God's word personified. Jesus often used parables and word pictures in his teaching to help us understand spiritual realities. And here we're given this picture of two men who each are building a house for themselves. There are similarities between these men and the houses that they are building, and there are also differences between these men and the houses that they build. And you'll notice as we're walking through this together that um, there are two, in particular, two differences that Jesus begins with, followed by two similarities, and then to finish up the illustration, there are two very different results that these men find in their lives. And so I wanna look at those with you this, the, now, Two differences, two similarities, and then two different results. So let's look at verses 24 and 26. We're gonna kinda look at these side by side and just go through these verses uh, and kinda pick out each section as we go. So verse 24 and 26. In verse uh, 24, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And then jump down to verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So we have these two men, and in these verses, they are paralleled side by side, and we see, as I said, differences and similarities. Here is the first difference, and that is we are looking at two types of hearers. Two types of hearers. In verse 24, Jesus is speaking about a man who hears his words and does them. While in verse 26, we're looking at a man who hears Jesus' words and does not do them. Jesus here is clearly addressing the issue of obedience. Obedience to his authoritative word. This is certainly not the only place in scripture where we find Jesus connecting faith with obedience. In John chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's this idea running throughout the New Testament about those who profess faith in Christ, trust in Christ, and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and Jesus says multiple times that if you say this with your mouth, you must also prove it with your actions. That faith is combined with obedience for those who truly know and love Jesus Christ. We see this probably most clearly in a parallel from the Apostle James in his letter to the churches. In James chapter one, verse 22, James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but rather do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do 
what it says. James then goes on in the following verses and on into chapter two to talk about how a man who says he has faith but does not prove that faith through works of righteousness is just a man who is deceiving himself. His faith is not real. It is a dead profession. (coughs) Jesus is picturing just such a man in this illustration of the two builders. Martin Lloyd-Jones has some helpful insights in his commentary on this passage, and he writes the following. It is simply a perfect definition of faith. He's speaking of the Sermon on the Mount in this illustration we're looking at. Faith without works is not faith. It is dead. The life of faith is never a life of ease. Faith is always practical. The difference between faith and intellectual assent is that intellectual assent simply says, Lord, Lord, but does not do his will. In other words, though I may say, Lord, Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no meaning in it unless I regard him as my Lord and willingly become his bond slave. My words are idle words, and I do not mean, Lord, Lord, unless I obey him. Faith without works is dead. I don't think that I am saying anything to you that you have not already heard. If you've been in the church at any length of time, and especially those of us who have grown up in the church, we have heard many times this, these passages preached, the idea that faith without works is dead. And as I said, I don't think it's something new to us, at least most of us here today. We've read James' words, we've read the words of Jesus, we've thought about these things, and we may be tempted this morning to kind of put a check on that box and to want to move on in this illustration and say, yeah, yeah, I get it, faith without works is dead, let's move on. But I truly want, and, and I've desired in my own life and tried in my own life reading this passage to, to stop, to pause, and to consider, to take the words of Jesus seriously and to, to ask myself the question, Which man am I truly? What is the reality of the faith that I profess? I've grown up in the church, gone to church all of my life. I know the word of God, I read the word of God, I pray, I talk to other people about Jesus. I'm here before you now standing and preaching the word of God, but that does not mean that my faith is real. There are many who profess the name of Christ, who go to church, who say prayers, who do not have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not know him. And the reality of their heart and their life, their true life, demonstrates the fact that they do not have a living and active relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is defined by a submissive obedience and a desire to know God and to serve him and to walk with him. And so I want to ask the question this morning, and I I trust that you will with me take a moment to pause and reflect and say, which man am I? Which man am I? What does my heart reveal about my love for Jesus Christ, my desire to know him, to walk with him, to serve him? As I get into the word of God, as I hear sermons preached, is the word of God transforming my life in such a way that it is evident that I desire to know him and walk with him and love him and serve him? 
You see, as Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing several warnings. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but if you go back and look up at where, um, where I mentioned that J- uh, Jace had left off uh, in verse 15 of chapter seven, here Jesus is addressing false prophets and he's, he begins this by saying, beware, beware of false prophets. He gives us a warning here about the false prophets. And that warning is that false prophets can be very subtle. They might be very hard to identify, and so be careful, be attentive. Anyone who preaches in the name of Jesus Christ, we should be attentive to that preaching and to be certain that it does line up with what the word of God actually teaches because the deception of the false prophet is very subtle, and so there's a warning there. In the next section, in verse 21, Jesus goes on to to talk about a man who is caught by surprise when he comes to stand before the Lord in judgment and he finds that he has been rejected by God even though he says, have I not done all of these things in your name? Have I not prophesied? Have I not done these good works in your name? And yet Jesus says to this man, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a warning of the subtlety of the self-deception that we might face in our lives, where we think that because we are religious, because we are near to uh, the Bible and the people of God, that we think that we are okay. When in actuality, Jesus says, there is a very real possibility that you are deceiving yourself or being deceived, and you do not actually know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And he says this again here as he transitions into this final warning. He says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words, when he says everyone then, he's pointing back to what he just talked about, those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, let me give you a picture of that. Everyone then who hears these words of mine will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And then he talks about the man who builds on the sand. So Jesus, what he is doing here is is giving us a warning that we might consider and think about our lives and say, am I being self-deceived? Do I think that I'm building on the rock when in actuality I'm building on the sand? Does my life match the profession of my faith? Jesus is picturing here for us these two men who are building what they believe to be lives of faith, both men building what they believe to be lives of faith, but one of them is built to stand and the other is destined to fall. So as we continue through this passage, I want that question to remain in our minds, which man am I? Is my faith genuine? Is it built on the rock or am I building on shifting sand? Let's look secondly at two, uh, the second difference that we see here are two different types of foundations. There are two different types of hearers, but there are also two different types of foundations on which they are building. The wise man, Jesus says, who hears the word and obeys it is building his house on the rock. This rock is the word of God, activated in the life of the believer. Jesus says, you hear my words and you do them, you build on the rock. It is the word of God made flesh. It is the very person of Jesus, alive and active in the believer, working to conform him to the image of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses four through 10 says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. A life of faith built on the solid rock of Jesus cannot be shaken. Notice in these verses that there is a spiritual house being built. A spiritual house is being built and it is comprised of a people, a royal priesthood, he says, a people, members of a body who are offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. While in contrast, it says that those who do not believe, what? They disobey the word. They stumble because they disobey the word. And because of it, they are rejected by God. Those who do not build their life on the foundation of faith in Christ Jesus have no other choice than to build on a foundation of sand. Any life that we build that is not founded primarily and fully on the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ in his word, is a life that is built on sand. So what exactly does that look like? And again, I want to emphasize and continue to emphasize the point that it is a subtle deception. Those who build their lives on the sand do so without knowledge that that is what they are doing. No person would do that purposefully. You don't purposefully build a house knowing that it's going to crumble and crash. We don't build our lives purposely knowing that we're headed for destruction. It's a subtle deception. So what does it look like? To put it plainly, I build on sand when Jesus Christ is not Lord of my life. When I make decisions based primarily on what I want, what I think, what I feel, then I am not building on the rock of Jesus Christ in his word. When I pick and choose portions of God's word which I want to believe and obey, but cast aside other portions that I don't want to think about or that, that, that bother me or concern me or things that I just don't want to have anything to do with, I'm building on the sand and not on the firm foundation of the word of God. When I allow podcasters or authors or friends to influence me in such a way that does not find its foundation in the word of God, then I am building my life on sand. How easy it is to be deceived and how tragic to find that it is possible to build so near to God's word, but yet all the while building on sand and finding that it that the word of God is not the undergirding foundation of your life, but rather the shifting sand. George Whitfield is a, is a good example of this. If you've done any uh, study on the life of George Whitfield, then you'll know that uh, Whitfield grew up uh, as a man who wanted to, to know Christ, um, to serve him. Um, 
And he actually spent the majority of his young life um, doing many, many things that others looking in on him would say were, were very religious and, and, and acts that were pleasing to God. He prayed, he fasted, he even evangelized. Uh, when he went to Oxford, he found a group of men who he went to study God's word with regularly. But he found during that time that even though he was doing all of these religious activities, There was no real change in his heart. There was no genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ that motivated him and drove him to obey Christ with a humble heart, a whole heart. And so he found himself doing all of these religious activities and looking very good on the outside, but he, in his heart, could not find peace with God. He could not find peace with God. Very similar to to Martin Luther and his story as well. We find these men who are, who are pursuing religious activities but do not know the surety, the certainty of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. And while at Oxford, uh, Whitfield met a man who helped him to see that need to know Christ personally. And he committed his life to Christ there and was changed and was transformed. And he continued to serve God faithfully, and we know was a great part of the Re- Reformation. Serving God faithfully, not out of duty, not out of religious duty, but out of a genuine love for and commitment to the person of Jesus Christ, living his life on the sure foundation. So we've looked so far at two differences between these men. They were different types of hearers. One heard the word and did it. The other heard the word and did not do it. We've seen that these men were building on two different foundations. One was building on the rock, while the other was building on sand. We're gonna come now to a couple similarities in the text. First, I wanna show you, or at least think with you, that these men were building the same type of house. Now, it's not explicitly in the text. I think it's an inference that we might make, and I do think it's an important one, though we'll go through this pretty briefly. Jesus never says that there is any difference in the type of house that these two men were building. And I think that we're safe to assume that the, the, the inference there is that they're building the same kind of house. The difference is the foundation on which they were built. From the outside, these men's lives might have looked similar or the same. What they were building in their lives what was undergirding them would, would have been hidden underground. It would have been hidden beneath. And so what that means, again, it it highlights the subtlety of the deception. From an observer's perspective, it may seem that both of these men are building a life of faith, but in actuality, they are heading towards two very different results. What, What inevitably reveals the truth about each of these men is the circumstances that they both face. And that's the second similarity that we see in this text. If you look back in the text with me at verses 25 and 27, you'll see, again, very similar um, wording. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Both men face the exact same circumstances. There are two things in this world that we are all destined to face. And no, I'm not talking about death and taxes, but rather trials and judgment. In Job chapter five, one of Job's friends rightly proclaims that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. 
I think all of us can attest to that and give examples from our lives of various trials that we have all faced individually. Specifically, over the last several years, we've all felt the weight of trial in a particularly heavy way. But though these circumstances may be unique to this time in history, the reality is that these types of trials are not new. The ravaging effects of sickness and plague have run through many civilizations throughout history. Becky and I have been talking about this a lot recently. In fact, just yesterday, we were listening to um, um, The Life of George Mueller. Uh, just listening through a, a book about the life of George Mueller and talking about how uh, they faced in England a cholera epidemic. Thousands of people were dying from cholera and just how he was working through that and, and, and understanding God in relation to that. Uh, again, not too dissimilar from some of the things that we may be facing today. And throughout history, others have faced similar things. Corrupt, incompetent, or broken governments have caused many instances of injustice or cruelty to the people. The church has faced and is continuing to face today many persecutions and difficulties. No one is immune from the reality of hardship and trial. And I think it's important that we allow that to sink into our our minds, our hearts, that we understand because it is so difficult sometimes to think, Why is God allowing all of these things to happen in my life? Shouldn't things be easier? Shouldn't we be able to walk through life with joy and happiness and peace without all of the constant onslaught of attacks, attacks from Satan, attacks from the world, attacks from all over where we just feel like we're being bombarded by trial? But the reality is that this world, in this world, you will have trouble. And we have to understand and keep that in our minds and remember that what we are facing is not something that is new or unique or out of the ordinary. It is life in this world. But it does not mean that we have to go through this life constantly miserable or or downcast or suffering. We can have peace and we can have joy through the suffering as we position ourselves in relation to Jesus Christ, and that's what we're getting at here. In your life today, at this very moment, you most likely are carrying the weight of some kind of trial. It is very likely that each and every one of us sitting here today, right now, are feeling the winds and the waves against our lives and against our faith. Each of us have unique circumstances, but it is very likely that all of us share that in common, that you right now are going through trials in your life and you're feeling the stress and the strain of that. You may be suffering through chronic sickness or a specific illness that is battering your body and your will. You may be suffering through a time of relational stress, rebellious children, conflict at work, marital difficulties. The list could go on and on. The reality is that none of us here today can say that we are free from the winds of trial in our lives. Though the details may be different, we are all battered in some way by the rain and the winds. Jesus is painting this picture of the house in the storm, and I believe that As he does so, he has in mind these trials of life, trials that are meant to confirm our faith and to prove it, strengthening it, or exposing it as false and empty. 
But I think that there is also a, a, another meaning, a further meaning behind the storms. Earlier we read a passage from 1 Peter where he quoted um, a portion of the prophet Isaiah, and I wanna read that specific passage for you now. It says in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and water will overwhelm the shelter. This particular passage speaks of a, a judgment, a coming judgment of hail and flood that sweeps away the shelter, the refuge of lies. The hail and the waters sweep away the shelter built on lies, but the one who's built on the sure foundation, the precious cornerstone, is saved. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The flood of God's judgment is a sure promise. God's word is clear that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we dare not stand there on the basis of our own merits. God's word tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is only on the finished work of Christ and his merits that provide a sure foundation on which to stand. There is a song that is sung that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And this is where we come to the point of emphasis in Jesus' illustration. There are two different hearers building on two different types of foundations. They're building what appear to be similar houses and they both face the same circumstances of life and yet we find in the end that each man has two very different results from the life that has been built. The house built by the wise man did not fall in trial and judgment because it was built on the rock but the house built by the foolish man fell, and Jesus tells us that great was the fall of it. As we saw earlier, uh, trials are meant to confirm our faith, to prove it and to strengthen it, or to expose it as false and empty. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This verse particularly talking about discipline in the context of God treating us as children. God does not discipline his children to punish them, but rather God disciplines his children so that we might grow, so that good might come out of it, that our faith would be confirmed and our faith would be grown and strengthened, that we might come to depend on him more to put off sinful habits and to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Similarly, in James chapter one, verses two through four, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its, 
Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This, these particular verses are always extremely profound to me. Every time I read them, it just blows my mind that James starts this section of verses with that phrase, count it all joy. Count it all joy. And again, if you know, or if you yourself, if you know of people or you yourself are going through trials that are so deep and so dark and so hard, this is a hard, it's initially hard to wrap your mind around this count it all joy. How can I count it all joy when I'm going through such difficult and hard waters? Well, James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What is ultimately the most important thing in our lives? It is that we be found in Christ, that we are being prepared for life with Christ for all eternity, life where we will not face the wind and the rain and the difficulties of sin and and judgment and trial. God is preparing a place for us where we can have perfect and pure and full joy and peace for all of eternity. But in this present time, God is working in our lives to conform us to Christ through difficulty, through suffering, through trial, that we ourselves might be conformed to Christ and that we might point others to Jesus as well. We point others to Jesus as we go through this life, holding firm to the foundation of the word of God, living it out, even in the most difficult of circumstances, with joy, with peace in the person of Jesus Christ, so that others might see that Jesus makes a difference in my life. Jesus makes a difference in my life because I love him and I want to be near him and close to him. And as we do that, we are a testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is alive, that he is real, that he is working, and that his promises are true. In contrast, the man who only has a profession of faith and no real connection to Christ through love and obedience is a man who will not be able to stand in the face of trials here on earth And you will find those who profess faith in Jesus Christ yet go through trials and either deny the faith or while going through those trials just cannot find the peace and joy in them. They cannot be near Christ and push him away because of the difficulty in the trial. It is a sign that my faith may not be genuine. And ultimately, the man who does not know Christ will eventually suffer the ultimate collapse of eternal judgment in the fires of hell. There's a section in Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary that was very helpful to me, very practical and helpful. I really would love to read to you the whole excerpt, but it was quite long, so I want to just give you a few snippets because I think it's incredibly helpful for us as we think through the application of this text. Uh, Lloyd-Jones writes, How then can we make certain of these things How am I to live my life here on earth with peace and certainty and assurance? How can I make certain that I am building my house upon the rock? How do I really put these things into practice? It is the greatest question in the world. Nothing is more vital than that we should remind ourselves of these things. It is not really enough just to be reading the Bible and praying. We have to apply what we learn. 
We have to face ourselves with it and hold it before us. Do not rely upon activities. Do not say, I am so active in Christian work, I must be all right. Our Lord said that you may not be all right, though you think you are doing it for him. Just face these things one after another and test your life by them. And then make certain that you are really keeping this teaching in forefront and at the very center of your life. Make quite sure that you are able to say honestly that your supreme desire is to know him better, to keep his commandments, to live for his glory. However enticing the world may be, say no. I know that I, as a living soul, have to go to meet him face to face. At all costs, that must come first. Everything else must fall into the background. It seems to me that this is the whole purpose of our Lord's picture at the end of this mighty sermon, namely that we should be warned against and made aware of the subtle danger of self-delusion and that we should avoid it by thus examining ourselves daily in his presence. In the light of his teaching, may he grant us the grace so to do. I want to briefly and finally look at this last couple of verses and then conclude. In verses 28 through 29, we see the authority of God's word personified in the person of Jesus Christ. The authority of God's word personified. Verse 28 says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. We've spoken a lot about the word of God this morning and it's important as we conclude, that we come to realize that the words of Jesus cannot be separated from the person of Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is God, the Word incarnate, as we just celebrated with Christmas. The words of Jesus are authoritative because Jesus himself is God in the flesh who is our ultimate and sovereign authority. The people who sat on the hillside that day listening to Jesus speak saw a man not unlike themselves in so many ways. Were you to have been there that day and you look and see this crowd of people and a man sitting teaching, you would look at Jesus and you would think to yourself, there's nothing very impressive about that man. He's not much different than me. The Bible tells us that there was nothing attractive about him to look at. He was a carpenter. He was uneducated. And yet, as he sat there on that hillside, teaching the people, they were astonished. They were astonished by this man and the words that he spoke. When he spoke, it was with all of the weight and glory and authority of God himself who spoke the very planets into existence, who said, let there be light and separated the light from the darkness, who breathed life into humanity. Can you imagine sitting and looking and listening to this man who is God in the flesh and as he spoke with that authority, that power, that depth of insight and understanding and confidence 
Because he's God. He knows all things and he is able to proclaim truth in ways that are astonishing. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation on which we may confidently stand. And I want to leave you this morning with this picture of Jesus and the hope that it is, it is not, I, I don't want us to misunderstand, to walk away from this text misunderstanding, it is not my obedience that ultimately saves me and makes me right with God. Again, it's a subtle danger. It, it's these subtleties. It is not my obedience that ultimately makes me right with God. It is the person of Jesus Christ. His life, his obedience, his death and suffering that he took for me in my place, paying the penalty for my sins. Jesus, the perfect righteous one, the word of God made flesh, is the foundation on which our lives must be built. It is a love for a savior, a perfect savior, that when I know him and trust him each day of my life, I, out of love, submit myself to him and to his word, and the result of loving Jesus Christ and being transformed by him is that I now obey freely, not perfectly, but I freely obey without fear of judgment because I love him and I want to walk with him. And that is the life that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It is evidenced by my desire to know him and to walk with him. It is not keeping the law because we cannot be saved by keeping the law. It is by trusting and knowing Jesus Christ and submitting myself to him on a daily basis that I might build my life in such a way that says, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and I will do what he says. I will walk with him daily, desiring to do so. And if I fail and falter and stumble, which I will, I will confess my sin to him. I will come to him. Just as we read, if you flipped back to Matthew chapter five and look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say there? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the kind of life that Jesus is saying, walk with me, follow me, humble yourself before me. Trust me and obey me. And he then becomes our confidence. So where are you this morning? We asked the question this morning, what type of life are you building? What man are you? Are you building your life on the rock of Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Do you love him? Is your heart drawn to know Christ more, to submit yourself to him in obedience, to confess your sin and to know that your sins are forgiven because Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. Are you walking with him in obedience day by day? Or are you building your life on the sand? Do you come to church, come to meetings, talk about Jesus here or there, but by and large, your life is your own. 
You are living your life and building your life for something that is not Jesus Christ. It is for your own glory, for your own pleasure, to meet your own needs and do your own thing. If you are building in that way, Jesus says to you this morning, be warned. That life will lead to destruction. Great will be the fall of it. But those who build on me, who know me and love me and walk with me, are destined for eternal life, for a sure and confident hope in this life and in the life to come. Which life are you building? And I pray that all of us would take time and opportunity to think hard on these passages, to evaluate our lives and to say, I want to know Christ more. I want to walk with him more closely than I have already been. I want to have what, what he talks about in Matthew chapter five. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so Lord God, help me. Help me, Lord, to know you better, to love you more, to walk with you, and to have the sure confidence that you are the foundation of my life. May we endeavor to build our lives on no other foundation in this coming year in all the years that God grants us to stand with confidence before the throne of God on the rock of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we do pray and ask that you would help us today, that you would continue to work in our hearts and minds as the, as the word of God has entered through our ears. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. Help us to think deeply on these things and to put them into practice these and, and the rest of scripture, God, help us to have a love for your word that transforms our lives and that all the glory might go to you. God, we just ask and pray that you would humble our hearts today. I pray that, again, if there are any here who do not know you as Savior, may have been deceived, may have thought that they were saved, may have come in here this morning thinking, I'm okay, I come to church, I read my Bible, I pray, but have realized now that there is not a transformation in their hearts that has come by genuine confession of sin and a receiving of the saving work of Jesus Christ. May they be saved today. I pray that you would work in all of our hearts that we might come to know you better, love you more, and walk with you each day of our lives. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.